Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, Licensed Professional Counselor. In today's episode, we are going to be speaking with Dr. Deborah Korn, Doctor of Psychology, a clinical psychologist with a private practice in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She is on the faculties of the EMDR Institute in California and the Trauma Research Foundation in Boston. She is an EMDR International Association approved consultant and presents and consults internationally on the treatment of adult survivors of childhood abuse and neglect. Today's episode is a real treat as we get to speak with Dr. Korn about her book she wrote with Michael Baldwin, a famous advertising executive. And the book is Every Memory Deserves Respect, EMDR, The Proven Trauma Therapy with the Power to Heal. And she is going to talk all about EMDR, what is trauma, and she is just an amazing expert. She's also going to talk a little bit about Michael's story and why he decided to co-write the book with her. Of course, Michael had his own EMDR therapist after going through seven or eight other therapists and never really getting to the root of his symptoms and what was going on in his life and is now in recovery from uh, extensive trauma and he's doing wonderfully and Dr. Deborah Korn is going to talk about that as well as so many elements and her definitions of EMDR are just so user-friendly. So if you're a person out there who has a family member who wants to know about EMDR, this is the podcast that they should listen to, this episode right here. And the book they should buy is Every Memory Deserves Respect. It is one of the most accessible books I have read on EMDR. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. Welcoming to the Intentional Clinician Podcast, we have Dr. Deborah Korn, and she has written an amazing book with uh, Michael Baldwin called Every Memory Deserves Respect, EMDR, The Proven Trauma Therapy with the Power to Heal. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Excellent. Well, it's been a pleasure uh, reading your book already. I have not even finished the book, but I've already been recommending it because I was so struck and I, I get sent a lot of books um, as I do this podcast. But I was so struck at how accessible this book was mm. so that not only could I recommend this to people I might supervise or other clinicians I meet who are on the fence about EMDR and what does it all mean, um, I could definitely recommend this to anyone, really, who can read. And it is very, very useful in that form because it explains very clearly uh, so many things about trauma, so many things about the treatment, and and Michael's story, which is so powerful uh, as well. So thank you for writing it. Yes, yes, my pleasure. And I'm so delighted to hear that you're reading it and enjoying it. Yes, it's it's great. And it even has some very cool pictures with facts um, overlaid on them, which I thought was cool uh, because it kind of gives your brain a slight break from the text. And exactly. that is something... Yeah, that's something I don't see very often. Exactly. In books. I think it's one of the most innovative things about our book it, that kind of sets it apart that it, it's almost like two books in one, right? It's got it's got 60 photographs, what we call billboards, which are a photograph and that little bit of information. And then it's got the narrative of the book. So it's meant to be really, really accessible. Wonderful. So you know, for the for the listeners out there, uh, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about maybe we should definitely go into the basics of trauma so people can understand where they're at and and if they want to maybe read this book or talk to an EMDR therapist or mm-hmm. or read more about EMDR. So, I, I suppose we should probably begin with um, you know the trauma, like what, what are we talking about when we talk about trauma? Mm, It's a good place to start. Well, in our book, we define trauma very broadly, purposely. We define it broadly. Uh, Trauma is a part of life, right? We know that 70% of adults have experienced at least one significant trauma across their lifetime. Maybe only 20% of those who've been exposed to trauma actually develop PTSD, but a large number of people have been exposed to at least one trauma. Many have been exposed to many traumas. We define trauma as any experience that feels overwhelming, that triggers strong negative emotions like shame or terror, 
and involves a sense of powerlessness or intense vulnerability. And we think of trauma as both objective and subjective. So it's both the event itself and the experience of the event. So no two people are going to have the same experience. What might be traumatic for one person might not be traumatic for the next person. But we do know that the greater the number of traumas that someone is exposed to, the greater the psychological, the physical toll. We know that trauma is cumulative, and we know that it's developmentally bound. And by that, I mean that children and adolescents are more vulnerable. They're earlier in their development. They have less resources and capacities to cope with things. And so they're more vulnerable to the effects of trauma. Yes, absolutely. And I think the the concept is kind of expanding. And that's why you made it very general, because a lot of people had only know about trauma through the words of the post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis. Right. And it says about 20% of adult trauma survivors develop post-traumatic stress disorder, but it doesn't mean that those who don't develop it don't also develop suffer. and well, yes, not suffer terribly, but also develop depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. relationship issues, sexual right. issues. And we know that um, from the research and there's a lot of research, of course, on the adverse child experiences study. And uh, we can get into that, but also the fact that this is, I think trauma, the concept of trauma is a paradigm shift away from kind of some of the old ways we used to classify problems. And I think it also helps people when they understand what trauma is and, and, and if they've had it to be able to start working on a road of recovery, um, especially because like you said, trauma can be the event, right? But we're not just blocking people out because, oh, well, you don't qualify because you didn't have this event. I had this event. That's a judgment. Exactly. It's up to their nervous system and their situation to determine if it's a trauma or not. And if it's a trauma, we will, and I'm going to ask you more about this, but you not only see uh, emotional changes, thinking changes, nervous system changes, you have physical changes that happen on um, developing brains or people that are are older. So can you talk a little bit about what, how we know a little bit about maybe the ACE study or, or, or what trauma does to people? Well, if we want to take a little bit more of a deep dive into the ACE study, which was a study that happened around 1995 to 97, since that time, and ACE stands for an adverse childhood experiences study. Um, Since that time, there have been many replications of the study. There's been many variations on the original design. They've applied this study to many different kinds of populations. But basically, the finding of this study was that adverse childhood experiences are highly predictive of health and psychological problems across the lifespan. So maltreatment, right, emotional, physical, and sexual abuse or neglect, and household dysfunction in childhood contributes to significant psychological issues later in life. Depression, anxiety, illicit drug use, um, alcoholism and alcohol abuse, suicidality. Uh, One in three diagnosed mental health conditions in adulthood are directly related to ACEs, to these adverse childhood experiences. And as I said earlier, the longer the exposure, the greater the number of ACEs, the more significant the medical and psychological impact. And certain health issues and medical disorders can manifest decades later, right? Chronic diseases such as um, cancer, stroke, uh, heart disease, uh, COPD, and diabetes, right? And a score of four, which means exposure to four major events in childhood, was associated with two times the risk of receiving a diagnosis of cancer, a fourfold increase in emphysema, a sevenfold, 700% increase in alcoholism. Yes, that is an enormous uh, correlation there. And with that, we've also found out that more than 60% of adults have survived at least one adverse child experience, which qualifies on this, uh, this study they were doing. Now with that, 
I think we need to take a little bit of context for the people that might go, well, wait a minute, just because I had, you know, these adverse childhood experiences, why would I be more at risk for emphysema? Why would I be more at risk for cancer? Why would I be more at risk for cardiovascular disease? And of course, obviously, depression, anxiety, relationship issues. Well, that is where it's not so simple. The correlation, the data is there. It's so obvious, but everyone has a unique story. And this is my little comment on it. You can tell me what you think, but my comment is that this something happens to the nervous system and or the brain and or the story of the person. And then that may influence them to cope in certain ways. So cigarettes, that's a good way to relax for some people. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a quick fix if your nervous system is out of balance to do that. But then of course the adverse effects could lead to lung cancer and emphysema and all these other things. Um, Eating food, overeating foods, or undereating, but overeating, especially with uh, leading to diabetes, we know that carbohydrates uh, and fast food like that can calm us down um, because of the the insulin sugar rush and all of that. Which I'm not a doctor, but essentially, try it. Eat a eat a bag of crackers and see how you feel. You're gonna fall. Try to fall asleep after that. Right. Um, so people develop these habits to cope with what has happened. However, in our society, we uh, not the collective we, but oftentimes in our society who are not scientists and psychologists, they say, oh, well, look at that person. What a loser. I, I can't believe they're doing these behaviors. Da, 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 da. We're kind of essentially labeling them by their behavior without asking a bigger question is, hey, what happened to you? Right. Even even doctors say you need to quit smoking. You need to quit eating so much. You're just lazy, you know, these sort of labels. And so that is even almost another uh, trauma on top of it, because not only does this person might not be aware that they had trauma, because you don't get to choose what family you grew up in. And you don't get to choose who your parents are and how they help regulate your nervous system and how their attachment to you is. Then they go, Oh, my God, I'm also the problem. I'm a big loser. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm lazy. I, I I have no self-control. And then they just lean into that, which is even a further issue, which leads to medical outcomes. So that was my little comment on that. I'm sure you have a a way of uh, discussing that. that Well, I think you're spot on. I think, you know, what we see is a cascade of problems that follow the onset of trauma. We see a Um, you know, we see an accumulation of problems over the course of time that just starts with the trauma. Like you said, um, the impact of trauma can lead to a belief system that keeps people from reaching out and being a part of communities, communities, you know, getting the social support they need in their lives. It can lead to all kinds of attempts to cope that are unhealthy, as you said, right? Drinking, drugging, poor eating, isolation, um, and all of these things uh, bear down on the individual's nervous system, their uh, way of being in the world, and um, also potentially set them up for unhealthy relationships, potential re-victimization later in their lives, and all of that can continue to just move them toward a chronic state of stress in their lives, which takes its toll on all systems of the body, not just the nervous system, but all of the uh, systems of the body that in turn can lead to illness and uh, psychological difficulties down the road. Absolutely. And it's so interesting um, living in the U.S. and the Western medical model as often accused of being a um, in multiple silos and, you know, go to this specialist, now go to this specialist, now Mm -hmm. go to this specialist, now Mm -hmm. go to this specialist, right? And all of them have their place. But (laughs) I I think the trauma-informed way we're discussing about this from the trauma research that you've, you've done even in your, uh, your institute and the, and being a part of the EMDR International Association and, you know, reading all the work of Dr. Bruce Perry and Dr. Dan Siegel and all of these other pioneers in the field are really showing how, how impactful the, our emotions, our relationships, uh, and just these important experiences as children, but even as adults, um, can influence all of our health outcomes, which is just, absolutely. I think, mind-blowing for a lot of people because right. we used to separate those two, right? right. Uh, go ahead. You know, I was just going to say, as you're, as you're talking, I'm thinking about um, 
uh, how important it is to me with this book out out there for the public, uh, how important it is to reach out to the medical profession. I'm doing a lot of podcasts for doctors, for medical doctors, for ER physicians, um, because I'm trying to get the message out there that you have to ask those questions, right? Where do you come from? What is your life like? What was your childhood like? You know, to, to screen for trauma-based symptoms, to screen for substance use and um, and poor habits, um, and to really treat people in a more holistic way where you're not just looking at, uh, you know, at the symptom that shows up on that day in the office, but you're really understanding that there's something at the root here that uh, that needs to get addressed. And I, my hope is that doctors will read this. Doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals will read our book and hear that message and take heed of studies like the ACE study that say you've got to treat the trauma history as well. You've got to treat the adaptations to trauma if you want a healthier human being. I think that's a great ambition and I think uh, very important. Uh, so I do think that hopefully that's been happening a little bit. I've been noticing mm -hmm. over the years, yes. I've actually had doctor people call and say, my doctor said I need to work on my trauma. I'm calling yeah. your clinic because you do EMDR. That used to never happen. Yeah. Right. In fact, right. I <laughs> here's a fun one. We, we've, I've had a few people tell me that their doctor said that EMDR um, was uh, not a valid treatment. Which was really interesting to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but meanwhile, okay, I don't know what that was about. Well, but, uh, a lot we'll, of misinformation out there. Yes, a lot of misinformation. So we'll we'll talk about EMDR as well. Um, but I do think that's important for doctors and therapists to work in tandem. Um, yes, we each have our role, and we can uh, we can work on collaboration. I do think eventually uh, the trauma-informed literature hopefully will make it into medical schools because that's yeah. going to save doctors a lot of time and a lot of money and yeah. a lot of uh, issues by understanding those elements and bringing those into the diagnosis of uh, different systems that they're Absolutely. they're working on. Absolutely. Um, I think that we need to be a trauma-informed society right? We're talking here about doctors, but we could talk about teachers. We could talk about lawyers. We could talk about many different professions where being trauma-educated and trauma-informed and even knowing just the littlest bit about how to help people get regulated in their lives so they're feeling, so they're able to feel more effective would make a huge difference. I agree with that. Yeah. I've often gone on rants about how the criminal justice system could work on rehabilitating mm. people mm. and make them into citizens uh, that have a pretty good working nervous system. And, and that, because they have a lot of time on their hands with people, you know, staying for years at a time. Um, it, it does remind me of this, uh, this other book, and then we'll get back to the EMDR, but called thinking fast and slow by Dr. Yes. Daniel Kahneman, where he yes. very simply lays out the two systems of the body and, and the Western medicine and philosophy for hundreds of years or maybe a thousand years has been really focused on the the logical quote unquote part of the mind or the reasoning part of the mind but that part of the mind is secondary to system one and that is what i think we're just learning with trauma informed and i would also call it nervous system informed yes. and i would also call it neuro neurobiology informed therapies interpersonal neurobiology interpersonal, yes, yes. Yeah, interpersonal neurobiology informed because then we realize oh <laughs> once you get into this for listeners out there who aren't maybe into this yet you start seeing why people have the reactions they do and why it's so difficult to work with people on logic and problem solving and solutions when their nervous system is in a state of fight flight freeze um fawn or collapse so um with that i think we have defined trauma pretty well, but I, I do think maybe a little bit more about if you could elaborate on how traumatic events or memories or situations can get frozen or locked into the nervous system. Um, what is that about? Can you explain that? Mm. Well, you know, we, we regularly process process experiences every day without difficulty, right? Under normal circumstances, like we go to a party 
We see our friends, we make conversation, we eat good food. We go home that night. Maybe we talk with our partner about the party. We reflect on the conversations we had. We Maybe we dream that evening about the party. But by the next day, we have processed through that experience and we put it up on the shelf. It gets moved into the past. Hopefully we don't have any intrusions, any nightmares about it. It's We've moved it along. But when we're talking about traumatic circumstances, something very different happens in the brain. It appears that those traumatic experiences get frozen or locked in the brain, and they get frozen along with the images, the feelings, the sensations, the thoughts that were part of that original traumatic experience. And the brain's information processing system is unable to digest that experience. And other information held elsewhere in memory doesn't get connected in, doesn't get integrated to help a person make sense of the event. And so a day later, a week later, months, years later even, you can get triggered and that traumatic memory, that unprocessed traumatic memory can get activated and suddenly the past becomes the present, right? People lose their adult present day grounding and perspective and Perhaps the entire memory gets activated or triggered, and that's where we see PTSD, where you have sounds and emotions and sensations and images coming at you, right, with these intrusive kinds of PTSD symptoms. But you also might just have the feeling component of the memory stirred up, and all of a sudden you're feeling really scared and you don't know why, or really sad and you don't know why, or you feel really trapped in a situation you don't know why, or you get and if you, you have a physical symptom out of the blue, you get pain or you feel constriction in your body and you don't know why. And in fact, you know, what is happening is that that memory that's still knocking around in your nervous system has gotten stirred and activated and is bearing down on you. And um, as you said, when people are uncomfortable emotionally or physically, they when they are in distress or experiencing pain, they reach out to various uh, strategies to deal with that. And they may, they may turn to drinking or drugs or self-injury or other behaviors to soothe themselves, to numb out, not even realizing that they are in distress because of something that's been lurking in their nervous system for a long, long time. Uh, yes, absolutely. I think that takes work. And that's where we're going to get into the therapy uh, portion of this. Um, for people that are looking for more about this, obviously, this book does define this quite simply. And if you're a practitioner who want to even more, check out Dr. Peter Levine's work as well, where he talks a lot about this. And so to get a memory frozen or locked in the nervous system, and when it's triggered, when you said the word triggered, and I want to make sure people understand what that we mean by triggered, what I was hearing, you tell me what you think, what I was hearing was some sort of association. So let's let's say I have a, a memory association with the smell of cinnamon. Let's all mm -hmm. pause for a moment. We all what's your association with cinnamon? Okay. Hmm. For some people, it might be like, um, you know, my grandmother's apple cider and she poured cinnamon on it, right? For some people, it might be a cinnamon candy they had one time, and you can think of that memory. And for other people, it may be a disgusting liquor that's cinnamon flavored that will remain nameless, but just really gross. Don't recommend it. Um, and they might have an adverse reaction to that. But those little associations could bring back full memory. They could bring back just a smell or a taste of it when I smell the smell of cinnamon. But that's an association. But a trigger is like, I, I would call it an association that's just massively over- Hyperdrive. Hyperdrive, yes. Overreacting, which causes me to get either stressed or underreact, um, you know, hyper or hypo. And so when you say triggered, like, let's just say uh, somebody uh, had been in a car accident years earlier and they had never really dealt with it. They just kind of blocked it out of their mind. And all of a sudden they see this red pickup truck from the early 90s. And all of a sudden they're sweating, they're freaking out, but they don't get it. They don't know why, right? right? And exactly. that's- why we need to get into therapy and therapy that works efficiently right. and effectively to address this, to reduce those associations and symptoms and triggers so that a person can see that red pickup truck and drive 
just totally normally because today is it's the year 2022 and I know how to drive and I'm not 15 again and this isn't some country road somewhere or whatever. And you know what? I I can smell cinnamon when I go into these stores and they're already marketing to us Christmas and it's not even October yet. And I can be okay because I'm not 18 and overdosing on uh, fireball whiskey or whatever it is, right? But we lose our sense of time, disorients us, and then people are annoyed. They're going, what is wrong with you? What is going on? Why are you acting this way? And then again, if you don't know about trauma and why it's leading this, then you start labeling yourself or maybe labeling the world. The world's unsafe. I can't go anywhere. I can't smell anywhere I go. They have cinnamon in their coffee and their apple cider. I can't, I've got to stay in my house, right? Or whatever. So, so there's these ways that because we don't understand the nervous system and how it affects us as people, and this is only starting to get into all the scientific literature in the last 40 years, maybe 50 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we yeah. are still relying on old information and, and judgmental kind of, uh, thinking. So let's talk about what works here. So let's just say anywhere from PTSD to complex PTSD to just, um, regular trauma that people go through. What is EMDR? And let's talk about that. Yeah, sure. So let's start with the name. Um, EMDR stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. I always like to say that is a mouthful. It's an earful. People have a hard time with the whole name. So let me break it down. EMDR stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. Desensitization is the reduction of distress, fear, and anxiety. Reprocessing is the reevaluation or the restructuring of thoughts and beliefs and the transformation of one's sense of self relative to past traumatic experiences. We're focusing here on moving the past into the past. The eye movement component relates to a discovery by Dr. Francine Shapiro. Francine Shapiro was the developer of EMDR who accidentally discovered that purposely moving your eyes horizontally back and forth while focusing on a traumatic memory leads to a reduction in the vividness and the emotional intensity of the memory. She developed an effective protocol for treating PTSD and trauma-related problems using this bilateral back-and-forth eye movement stimulation, and she published the very first research study on this approach in 1989, right? She worked with rape survivors and uh, Vietnam combat veterans in that study. So hence the name eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Now, EMDR is a a memory-focused psychotherapy that helps people deal with the impact and the legacy of trauma and adverse experiences in their lives. It's based on the idea that psychological problems are related to a failure to adequately process traumatic experiences and memories. So relating back to what I was just explaining about these memories that get frozen or locked in the nervous system. Now, these unprocessed traumatic memories in our nervous system continue to affect how we perceive things, decisions we make, reactions we have, the beliefs we hold about ourselves and others. And these present-day triggers activate these unprocessed traumatic memories leading to ongoing distress. And in EMDR therapy, we help clients access and activate their unprocessed traumatic memories with a set of focused questions And then we jumpstart the brain's information processing system using the bilateral stimulation. And with EMDR processing, a client's distress eventually decreases and relevant adaptive bits of information located in other parts of the brain, helpful present-day perspectives get integrated. So by the end of treatment, folks wind up believing, sensing, feeling something very different. It's over. I'm safe now. Uh, I was only a kid doing the best that I could. It wasn't actually my fault. I'm good enough. I'm in control now. Um, I have choices, right? There's shifts in thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and physical sensation sensations. And Healing involves spontaneous movement toward more positive thinking and more manageable feelings and a significant reduction in the level of disturbance experienced in one's body. Wow, that is actually the best definition of EMDR I've ever heard. I'm not even Ah. kidding. (laughs) Ah, Thank you. This is like my eighth podcast on EMDR. And that is 
phenomenal. Yes, we it is different than talk therapy for everyone who's out there, but it involves talk therapy. And you will be surprised because I'm sure, Dr. Korn, you've gone through EMDR yourself as a client and or a practice for your colleagues, and I, as I have as well. And I was actually astounded. Mm-hmm. I, I thought in 2009 when I first was trained, I thought, okay, everyone's telling me to do it. Let's see what this is about. Eye movement, bilateral stimulation. What is all this business? And I was astounded that not only did it in and our practice sessions make me feel better physically and mm-hmm. mentally. Mm-hmm. I also discovered in those sessions that I was like, oh goodness, I have some traumas that I've repressed here. And not that I didn't know they existed, but I didn't know how they were impacting me. Absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that they were still impacting me. And I said, that's it. Not only am I going to practice this, I'm going to go to an EMDR therapist. I'm going to go through the whole protocol on all these different things. And I mean, it it changed my life, and then it started changing my clients' lives because I said, I finally figured out how to help people that yeah. I felt helpless to help before. I didn't yeah. know what to do. It's like exactly. uh, this terrible things happened to you, and everything reminds you of it. And I, you're you're having nightmares and intrusive right. thoughts and chronically failing relationships, and you quit jobs and you don't have any impulse control, and you're doing drugs and and you're doing it all because you're sad or all because you're angry or all be you know all these reasons, right? But you can't get out of the cycle. And EMDR helps people get out of that cycle. Fun fact, if people want to remember how the order, because a lot of people say, was it EDMR? Is it ERMD? What is this? So eye movement desensitization reprocessing is literally sounds like something you would practice in choir to sing to like help your enunciation. (laughs) But you wrote this book with Michael Baldwin, Every Memory Deserves Respect. E-M-D-R. Yes. I see what you did there. Very good. That was our goal, right? Our goal is to give people an easier way to remember the name. There's a new mnemonic for us there. So I And there's truth in the title too, right? It's not just a mnemonic, but it's it's really giving people the message that even though other people might be saying just get over it, just put it in the past, right? Or it, it wasn't such a big deal. You know, every memory, if you are still feeling like it's affecting you, it's haunting you, it deserves our attention. And if you give these memories your attention and do the work, you will get relief. Absolutely. And it's hard to do the work on your own. Um, I do think that you'll get the best results in therapy, but oftentimes due to post-traumatic stress disorder or other trauma symptoms, one of our, a a main coping skill of people is to avoid thinking about these things because it makes them feel upset or throws them off. And so how can we use EMDR and what we call maybe bilateral stimulation, the eye movement or tapping or something like this, while bringing up these difficult events or feelings, how can we use, how does that help decrease people's avoidance and fear of of even talking about these difficult Mm -hmm. experiences? Would it be helpful for me to kind of walk your listeners through what, what they might expect if they were coming into EMDR therapy? Yeah, actually, I think that would be great. Okay. Why don't I, why don't I take that approach? Um, so early sessions involve taking a thorough history and coming up with a treatment plan, um, establishing safety and trust within the therapeutic relationship. This is not just a technique. This is a comprehensive psychotherapy. The relationship, the safety of the relationship really matters. In the early sessions, we might do resourcing or skill building work if it's needed to make sure that a client is ready to approach challenging emotional material. Now, you know that most people don't show up saying, I want to work on my traumatic memories from age five or age 12. Most people walk through the doors and they say, I'm miserable. I'm having trouble coping. I'm having marital problems. I'm depressed, anxious, right? I have PTSD symptoms. If they're educated, you know, if they've read or heard, they'll say, I have PTSD symptoms. But we often begin with the client's current distress, And we float back, right? Looking for the root of the distress. We search for relevant memories to target using the body, using imagination. Um, And once a target memory is identified, we activate the memory through a series of questions. And then we introduce 
30 to, second, 30 to 60 second sets of eye movements or bilateral back and forth stimulation to jumpstart and support the brain's stalled information processing system. And over the years, we've discovered that other forms of what we call bilateral stimulation are also effective in reducing distress. So we might have clients track our fingers with their eyes as the fingers move back and forth or track a light that moves back and forth. We might have them listen to alternating tones or we might tap back and forth on their hands as they rest them in their lap. And by the way, during the pandemic, we discovered that EMDR can be done virtually. The research is out now and it appears that virtual EMDR is as effective as in-person. Uh, EMDR. But with every set of bilateral stimulation, the client is asked to simply notice what changes or emerges and to report images, thoughts, feelings, sensations, impulses, insights. We encourage them to just notice, to be a passenger on a train, uh, just watching the scenery go by and always staying connected to the present moment, just witnessing from a distance. And we remind clients over and over, it's old stuff, just let it go by. And we really stress the importance of this dual attention, that is keeping one foot in the present at all times while accessing the past. And after every set of bilateral stimulation, we ask, what do you get now? What do you notice? What's changing? And no two people process in the same way. There's no supposed tos, no shoulds. We say to clients, whatever comes up, just let it come. And clients remember and they process. They process fear and grief, old anger, guilt and shame. And we work to keep the processing body focused, right? We ask again and again, and where do you feel that? Where do you feel that in your body? Just notice that's part of the memory. And in the course of processing, a client might imagine saying or doing what they never got to previously say or do at the time of the trauma. They might express their rage. They might imagine themselves being able to run away or fighting back with super superhuman strength. Um, a client might also spontaneously see their younger self and offer compassion or care, kind of offer what was never offered to them at the original time of the abuse or the trauma. And as I said, with reprocessing, a client's distress eventually decreases and you see this shift in the client's belief system to, you know, it's over, I'm good enough, I have choices now, as I said earlier. Um, the last thing I'll say about the, the intervention, the approach itself, is that it is a comprehensive approach that addresses past traumatic events, current triggers, and future behavior goals. So we always talk about this kind of past, present, and future three-pronged approach where we're not just trying to clear out the past, but we're also trying to help the person to live more comfortably in the present without the avoidance, without the vulnerability to triggers, and give them the confidence to approach situations that they've never approached before, that they've been avoiding so on and so forth. Yes, I couldn't have said it better. I think that is phenomenal. Um, you're going through the phases of EMDR. And I think something to remember for people is that while we have a process and we have steps with EMDR, we're still, as an EMDR therapist, we're still very much personably helping you. Absolutely. And working through different things. And if you're ready for it, it's going to get you the results. And like you said, Nobody, pro no two people process the same, but when you're watching the memories go by or the impressions go by, one of the things I was thinking about, and I'm not sure what your comments on this would be, is it's almost as if when something bad happens to us, our body wants to have control. And if we can't control, we dissociate and we shut down, right? But we want it, we want to control it. But by letting the therapist help you go through this process of EMDR, you're able to relax and, and let the memory process, actually process and, and get integrated into a timeline of the past versus it just staying here and, and, and agitating you. And thus, your distress, which we measure, will go down from a 10 to an 8 to a 7 to a 6 to a 5 to a 3 to a 1. And I used to give this analogy to, to clients. I say, listen, if we if we do this, and I know you don't want to talk about this memory, and we don't really have to talk about it, but we, right. we do have to process it. It's going to impact you eventually. The way that me talking about pancakes affects you. 
I mean, most people have not been traumatized by pancakes. There may be a few out there. But or cinnamon. Most, or cinnamon, right? But but if I talk about, you know, you know, my dad beat me up because of this and that, that, unless I'm dissociated from the feeling, could really hurt my feelings. But if I've processed fully through the EMDR process, it may help me in all of the symptoms or avoidance or triggers that were, you know, causing me to um, act a certain way or have certain symptoms past EMDR, I'm not going to have those. So for instance, before I, 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 this is just anecdotal pretend client who was beaten up by his father and saw almost every man as a threat and was ready to fight at any point and carried a knife. Okay. Mm -hmm. So after EMDR client doesn't need knife. He doesn't feel like every man's a threat, right? He realizes that that was unfortunately a formative experience of my youth and my unconscious self, my nervous system said, you got to be safe. You got to look out for any guy walking around. He could definitely hit you at any moment, which as an adult, we know that doesn't generally happen. Uh, usually you have to get into a confrontation argument first before somebody okay. might hit you, right? Eventually, yeah. Once in a while, somebody might just slug you on the streets, but <laughs> right. um, that's not very typical, right? right. And so, and so that, that helps us. But, and obviously if this person, you know, logically was having a good day, he could say, well, of course I know no one's going to hit me. Well, why are you carrying the knife? Why are you always poised for violence, right? So, and those things, that's just an example of how it could happen. Beautiful example. Mm -hmm. um, so with that, it could be anything. It doesn't have to be violence. It could be somebody, you know, for instance, let's say a, a, a typical, typical situation where a woman whose mother keeps going, well, you looked better when you weighed 10 pounds less right. and keep saying that to the person that could be tremendously traumatic. And they mm -hmm. might start developing an eating disorder and yes. think that they're ugly, right? Mm -hmm. right. Which affects food, mm -hmm. which affects their organs, which affects uh, their ability to date or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, and mm -hmm. that, that could be reduced through EMDR. So many things, but oftentimes, like you said, when p patients come in, they, they often come in with what's going on. They aren't coming and saying, I'm ready for EMDR. Here right. is my seven traumatic memories. And they memories. come in wanting to talk and right. wanting somebody to listen. And so we have to begin the work with people by educating them about what we know today to be the case about trauma recovery. We know that talk therapy is not enough. And we really are asking people to um, buy into something that is different. Um, but the rewards, the rewards of buying in and really engaging are tremendous. I agree completely. Um, with the book, uh, Michael Baldwin, the co-author who couldn't be here today for this interview, he, he talks a lot about his story and mm -hmm. could, are you okay? Let's, let's introduce Michael a little bit. Uh, and then are you okay telling a little bit of his story? Um, yeah, Sure. He's an accomplished leader in the communication industry with more than 35 years of award-winning work in advertising. He's the founder and principal of the branding and communication firm Michael Baldwin Incorporated in New York. He's a trauma survivor actively engaged in the process of recovery. And he went to an EMDR therapist who was not you, but you happened to run into each other at some point and become colleagues. But um, can you tell me about him and, and why his what his story, which you talk about, he talks about in the book, uh, is unique? Yeah, well... Um... Michael was in treatment with one of my colleagues, Dr. Jeffrey Magnavita. Um, Michael was not my client. Um, and uh, Michael had been in treatment with eight different therapists over the course of 22 years. Not a single therapist had ever mentioned the word trauma to him, had never mentioned trauma-informed treatment, had never helped him to understand the connection between his childhood experiences and his adult symptoms. But in his treatment with uh, Jeffrey Magnavita, uh, he, he used EMDR. EMDR was at the heart of his treatment. And after about two years in treatment with Jeffrey, Michael is a new person. He absolutely uh, attributes his good mental health at this point in time and the joy in his life to the changes he experienced through EMDR. Um, and he, in the course of his treatment, he started to get certain images associated with the concepts and the process of change. He's a very visual thinker. He's been in the field of advertising for most of his uh, career. And so he started to have these images pop 
and started seeking out photographs that kind of captured these concepts, imaginally cap- captured these concepts from his therapy experience. Um, and at one point, Jeffrey Magnavita said to him, you know, th- this there's an idea for a book here, you know, to kind of pull these billboards, these images together, connect yourself to a, a trauma expert, an EMDR expert, and perhaps you could create a book that really captures um trauma and the recovery process and EMDR therapy for the public. And so Michael approached me and um, I was absolutely smitten by this idea. I thought uh, it would be wonderful to have an opportunity to write a book with a trauma survivor. And, um, you know, Michael is someone who, um, due to the neglect that he experienced in his early life, he always felt alone, unsupported, unloved, insecure, worthless. Um, You know, he showed me a photo from his childhood. And in this photo, he looks like a refugee from a war-torn country. Now, Michael grew up in a very privileged family, but he was he was profoundly neglected. He would wander off, you know, from the backyard of the family and neighbors like blocks away would bring him back after finding him in a traffic intersection. Um, And he, uh, you know, he was desperate in his life to escape from unbearable feelings from his childhood. He kind of created a false persona of perfection for the outside world. He became an achievement and a status addict and a workaholic. He was unable throughout his adult life to um, form authentic or intimate relationships. He suffered from recurring, terrifying nightmares. He suffered from phobias, right? He was afraid to use public restrooms. He was afraid of heights. He was afraid of any suggestion of intimacy with a woman. And the saddest part was that he just thought that it was who he was. He had no idea that these phobias or these difficulties were attached to or the result of something, right? Um, He, as an adult, he would drink excessively until he'd black out. Um, Sometimes he would combine the alcohol with Vicodin as a means of numbing and escaping. And it really wasn't until he got into treatment with Jeffrey Magnavita that, um, you know, he started to connect the dots. He had, he knew that a lot of bad things had kind of happened to him when he was young, but he never conceptualized them somehow as traumatic. And he certainly never thought of them as having anything to do with his adult uh, struggles, his adult emotional struggles. You know, he didn't think of himself as a victim or as a survivor. He didn't consciously remember a number of things that happened to him. He only had fragments of memories that really didn't make sense to him. And he came to understand his trauma story with Dr. Magnavita and, um, you know, really now tells a story when people ask him kind of about his trauma history. He shares a story that includes uh, the experience of kind of willful neglect on his parents' part. Um, he he recognizes that he was bullied at home by his brother and he was bullied at school. You know, he was abused sexually, physically, and emotionally. Um, and, you know, for the, the longest time as a kid, he couldn't read. He had all kinds of tutors after school. He couldn't focus. He was accident prone. He, he, um, he suffered multiple concussions to his forehead because he was always kind of disoriented and tuned out and falling. Um, And as Michael likes to say, other than that, he was fine. (laughs) Right. Right? Right. And um, maybe the last thing I'll say is that, um, you know, the, the way he coped again was through kind of this, schema of grandiosity where he he had to have the best of everything the biggest of everything he became a workaholic he dissociated he numbed out he was not connected to his body he did not care for his body um and uh you know today he is living a very very different life right he he takes very good care of himself um his nightmares, his phobias, his PTSD symptoms, his addictive behaviors are all gone, right? Mm. Um, EMDR wiped away that fake persona that he had constructed over so many years. And he found himself starting to live 
and behave in a more authentic way versus being locked in this kind of goal set, goal achieve uh, mentality, this cycle. Um, his obsession with status uh, and all its trappings just evaporated. And he he looks back on it with embarrassment now, like he can't believe that he had to construct this grandiose image, um, you know, for so many years of his life. And, uh, and maybe most importantly, EMDR um, really opened the door to intimacy for him um, with his friends. And he started for the first time in his life thinking about and pursuing intimate relationships, uh, romantic relationships. And um, it it opened a door to a relationship with his brother. His brother was his bully growing up. Um, He was terrified of his brother and symptomatic as a result of his brother. And uh, basically estranged from his brother from most of his life. And through his EMDR treatment, and actually since the start of writing this book, he reapproached his brother and has um, rekindled, I don't even know if it's fair to say rekindled, he's established a relationship, maybe for the first time, with his brother that is genuine and loving. And he talks to his brother every Friday via Zoom now. They just went away on a trip together. Um, and he sees that as a, a complete miracle. And uh, and Michael has referred, I think he's referred 45 different separate people um, for EMDR therapy. He Every other week he's coming to me asking for a referral in another part of the country. And, and all of these people in his life are, uh, you know, having very profound experiences in EMDR as well. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for talking about Michael's story. And I know in the book, there's a lot more detail, which people can get into, which is really interesting to watch his recovery from all of this and how he coped. And, you know, he coped in so many different ways that we all do. Um, And and the book goes over a lot of those ways we cope. And um, so I wanted to, you know, we're we're getting close to the end here, but Mm. I, I wanted to talk about a couple of things before we get into what's the best way to find an EMDR therapist and where mm-hmm. do we find your book, which I'm going to ask about just prepping everybody for that. But mm-hmm. I wanted to read a little bit and have you make any comments you want on these EMDR therapy myths versus facts, because mm-hmm. I think there these, these myths are really annoying me. So um, <laughs> I, I'm going to just, I'm going to read it and then you can comment. So, yeah. And people okay. can find the myths versus facts on our website. Oh, they can. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'm going to go over some of that's okay. okay. That's all right. Um, yeah. EMDR therapy myth. It is not supported by research. Um, and this one is insane to me, but fact, though EMDR sounds unusual and perhaps initially difficult to understand, how does moving eyes back and forth reduce suffering? It is an evidence-based therapy that is fully supported by an extensive body of scientific research. It has been endorsed by top-tier trauma treatment as a top-tier trauma treatment by well-respected organizations around the world. Any comments on that? Yeah, well, there are more than 30 randomized controlled trials. That's the gold standard demonstrating the effectiveness Mm -hmm. of EMDR for PTSD in civilian adults. It's, you know, it's absolutely an evidence-based top-tier treatment uh, for this condition. And, um, you know, in addition to being an evidence-based treatment for PTSD, evidence is mounting in support of EMDR therapy for uh, all different populations, you know, children and adolescent, adolescents, combat veterans, uh, first responders, right? It's helpful with both acute PTSD and chronic PTSD. Um, and uh, clinically, it's being used uh, for a range of diagnoses, right? Psychoses, eating disorders, sexual dysfunction, um, addictions, It's being used with all ages. It's being used in groups, in schools, and there's research to support all of this. Um, I always like to cite one recent study. Um, There was a recent meta-analysis looking at gold standard research studies, um, and this meta-analysis determined that not only was EMDR clinically effective, but it's also the most cost-effective of the 11 trauma therapies that were evaluated in the treatment of adults. Uh, with PTSD. 
Okay, I like that. And you can find out more of that on your website. Mm-hmm. And that is everymemorydeservesrespect.com. Also, emdr.com has a lot of the research studies mm-hmm. uh, posted as well. And you answered another myth, which is that EMDR is just for PTSD. That's a myth. Yeah. Um, it can, in addition, it's being used to treat other problems, anxieties, phobias, addiction, depression, pain, obsessive compulsive disorder, low self-esteem, intimacy issues, just to name a few, because it is, it is its own therapy, but it's combining with therapy with it already works. I've, I love that one, which is this counseling works. The research is in now we've got a new treatment that is like a modified version of counseling. So then you combine the two, you're going to get better results. I know that's not really scientific. But that's how I like to look at it. <laughs> um, other other myths are we already kind of covered is that myth is EMDR is a mechanical and personal process. It is not. If you're Absolutely. in EMDR therapy and you have a therapist who's making it mechanical and personal, you've got the wrong EMDR therapist. They probably are not up on the latest trainings. They may not be EMDR certified right. and they probably need a refresher. No offense That's to that right. therapist. Any right. right. The that? therapist is there at the client's side every step of the way, addressing fears, offering reassurance, cheerleading, offering validation, you know, there if the processing gets stuck at any point. Um, you know, it's so important for our clients to feel seen and heard and valued and accompanied. And, you know, I, I explicitly say to my clients all the time, I'm right here with you. I'm not going to let you drown. I'm not going to let you get lost, right? And we we offer to bear the pain with them so they can process it and heal. And we work hard to make sure they stay within that window of tolerance, what feels tolerable in the work. We help with the pacing, right? We make sure they stay grounded in the present as we dip into the past. Um, and we, you know, we help with um, those places that are rougher along the way. We help them navigate. Excellent. A couple more myths to shoot down here. EMDR therapy is only for adults. Mm-hmm. Research supports the effectiveness of EMDR therapy in treating children and adolescents with PTSD and other trauma-related symptoms. In fact, EMDR may work more quickly with kids because of their memory networks are less complex and extensive, and there are shorter channels of association to pursue. And I want to hear your comments, but another resource for this, if you're looking into this, is Dr. Uh, Dr. Ana Gomez or mm-hmm. Ana Gomez, Ana Gomez, uh, who mm-hmm. I know personally, and she has written phenomenal books and does trainings all over the United States. So any comments on that? Uh, well, you know, I, I don't work with kids, but my colleagues who work with kids work with children as young as three years old two three years old using EMDR, right? We adapt it for children. We use puppets for the bilateral stimulation, right? We use all kinds of visual cues. We, it can be combined with, um, the kinds of therapy that are more common in working with kids like play therapy or sand tray therapy, Um, And my oldest client, my oldest EMDR client is a 94-year-old woman, and we do EMDR every session. So, um, you know, I I, I think it is uh, an intervention. It's a treatment approach for across the lifespan. Okay. Well, we've got more myths, but I'm only going to do one more because people can read them. Uh, This one I hear sometimes, EMDR therapy does not work for complex or severe trauma fact, EMDR is effective in helping people affected not only by single traumatic events, but also by chronic prolonged trauma, childhood sexual, physical, emotional abuse and neglect, domestic violence, endless separations and losses or illness. A complex complex history requires a more elaborate game plan and treatment usually takes longer. That said, it is still regarded as a highly effective psychotherapy for survivors of severe and chronic trauma. Any comments on that? Well, people always ask me, uh, how long does it take? How many sessions is this treatment? And, you know, what we know is if we're treating somebody with a single incident adult trauma, we can probably knock out that PTSD in three or four sessions, maybe even a single session for some people. But when you've got complex trauma, which refers to exposure to, to prolonged repeated trauma, right, more extensive childhood trauma, Treatment is going to take longer, but I still like to say to people, however long you think it's going to take, it may take longer than that, but it's going to be shorter. It's going to be more efficient, more effective than talk therapy. Um, Often with folks that have more extensive trauma, the range of difficulties are more extensive, right? There's issues with 
emotion regulation. So there's, they may be problems, problems with substance abuse or with uh, anger or with self-injury. And so sometimes we have to take a, a significantly longer period of time upfront, making sure folks have the stability, have the resources they need to actually look at the, the deeper, more challenging traumatic material. Um, and so we take that time up front. We want to make sure the person is totally prepared to move into that territory before going there. But we go there and they heal, just like folks that have uh, less extensive trauma. Absolutely. And you want to make sure that your therapist, if you have complex PTSD or severe trauma, is not only trained in EMDR, but is comfortable with um, working with somebody who has complexities, where some EMDR therapists who might be brand new might start out working yeah. with less complex situations. But it doesn't mean that the tool doesn't work. It's just that the therapist's confidence has got to match who you are. So that being said, uh, what's the best way to, for someone, in your opinion, to find and vet a qualified EMDR therapist? Yeah, well, the simplest route is go to our website, everymemorydeservesrespect.com, and there there are links to the EMDR International Association, uh, EMDRIA. It's called EMDRIA, and EMDRIA has a directory of uh, EMDR therapists across the country. Um, so you can either go directly to EMDRIA to find a therapist uh, at EMDRIA or go through our website. Um, and there's different uh, levels of credentialing within the EMDR therapist community. Kind of the most experienced, the most credentialed would be EMDR consultants. Kind of the next level down would be certified EMDR therapists. And then there's plenty of people who just have chosen for whatever reason um, to not get certified or, be, or become consultants, but the, you know they're solidly trained in EMDR. In our book, uh, we have a list of questions you can carry with you to a, an initial conversation with an EMDR therapist that will help you get a sense of their experience, get a sense of whether they're a good fit for you. I always tell people, ask those questions right up front. Trust your gut. Um, it's so important that you feel comfortable, you feel understood um, from the get-go with someone, um, and that you know that you have choices about who to select to do a very, very important piece of work in your life. That's perfect. I agree 100%. I have no further comments on that. I think that's an excellent resource to go to. Uh, and I think, I speaking of your website, I will have that website in the show notes. Um, and people can people buy the book right on the website? Uh, there are links to purchase the book th through mm -hmm. the website. Um, you can also purchase the book on Amazon and multiple online booksellers. And of course, you know, it's available at your book, your, uh, your brick and mortar bookstores, local bookstores that we want to be supporting as well. Excellent. One and it, there's, it's also oh, yeah. on Audible. That was my next question. Yes. <laughs> was, is there an audio version? Yes. Wonderful. Well, that's, yes, that's a, great. Yes. And we love the narrators for our, our Audible version. Um, they did a beautiful job of really kind of capturing the feeling of the book as well. And you can hopefully hear the compassion of the book uh, through the Audible version. Well, that's just beautiful. I'm I'm excited. Maybe I'll even get the Audible version. Um, it's <laughs> we been do my, encourage yeah. if they get we do encourage if people get the Audible version that they also consider buying the book because the Audible does not come with the visuals. Oh, it doesn't come with the billboards. Oh yes. So it's nice to listen and be able to look at the billboards as well. I agree. I like that you call them billboards. Yeah, yeah because that, that's got our words and and the text, uh, but they're really interesting and and uh, I love how they. It, they kind of illustrate, I guess that's the point of mm -hmm. metaphorically or literally mm -hmm. what's going on in, in the, uh, in the text. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's been my pleasure to have you on Dr. Deborah mm -hmm. Korn. Is there, is there anything else I'm missing that before we head off the air? Uh, the only thing that I would add is I, Michael's not here with us today, but Michael always likes to end these conversations by saying, don't wait right? He did not find an EMDR therapist until he was in his 60s. He had spent a lot of years suffering and not living fully. And he always says, don't wait. You, if it, you, someone in your life, someone you love, encourage them to seek treatment. And I always like to say, 
come as you are, right? You don't have to figure things out before you come. You don't even have to know what you're going to say when you walk, when you make the phone call or you walk through the front door. That's the job of an EMDR therapist, of any counselor that you're going to go see, any trauma-informed counselor, is to help you start to find the words, to start to have develop a framework um, for your story. So don't worry about you know, being ready. You, you you bring your whole hot mess to therapy and, you know, we will help you go from there. Yes, that is perfectly said. Yep. Do not wait and get involved and you will be, as I was, surprised, exceptionally surprised at the results of EMDR therapy. So thank you so much for writing this book and coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to your audience. And I'm sure they will also appreciate hearing it. Awesome. Great. And there you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast with Paul Kraus. If you're enjoying the show, please share with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. If you'd like to, please give us a rating on iTunes. It really helps get out the word about this podcast. If you are looking for an EMDR, International Association Consultant, I can now provide 20 hours needed to become EMDR, International Association Certified, as I am an EMDRIA consultant. I have groups and I have individual sessions, both online and in person. You can check out details by going to my website, counselingsupervisorgr.com or healthforlifegr.com and send me a message. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids area at Health for Life Counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krause and his guest. And while these are based upon literature they have read and their experience in the fields they are in, these should not be viewed as the definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255, or you can just dial 988. Did you know that you could support your local bookstore by shopping at www.bookshop.org? You can order books from the comfort of your own home while supporting local brick-and-mortar businesses near you. Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association and other counseling associations are very important to keep quality counseling and therapy services available in the United States. It helps increase education, promotes best practices, and works on legislation to make sure that counselors and therapists can have a living while they're working and helping our communities. So if you're not involved, please join your local association or the National Associations, American Counseling Association, Arizona Counselors Association, Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association as an example. If you want to get trained in EMDR therapy, I recommend EMDR Training Solutions. I'll have a link in the show notes. You can use the code intentional at checkout and get $100 off your first training. Until next time, I'm wishing you all a safe and peaceful week. Oh God, it must be so nice to be so sure.